Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing our series in the Book of Acts, and here Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, James B. John, and Jeffrey Myers will be discussing Acts chapter 23, where Paul continues to speak to the council. There is a plot to kill Paul, and then Paul is sent to Felix, the governor. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, James B. John, and Jeffrey Myers discussing Acts 23. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, James Bijan, and Jeff Myers. Uh, Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background running everything and making sure that this all gets recorded and gets uh, to you all in a polished fashion. We are in uh, the midst of a study, series of studies in the book of Acts. We're nearing the end of the book of Acts, uh, and in this episode, we'll be talking about Acts 23. This is part of the section of Acts, several chapters in Acts that are dealing with Paul's various trials. Paul has been arrested in Jerusalem, and from here on, throughout the rest of the book, Paul is under arrest, and he's being held by the authorities, Roman authorities, and he's put on trial by a series of courts. The same three courts that tried Jesus now try Paul. Paul appears before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court. Paul appears before Herod. Paul appears before Roman officials, and uh, the book ends with him anticipating a hearing before Caesar himself. So Paul is the focus of attention through these chapters. But one of the there's a, one of the interesting twists, especially in the in this chapter twenty three and chapter twenty four, is the the way that uh, the the Jews are exposed in the course of these trials of Paul. That happens in the Gospels when Jesus is put on trial, especially in the in the Gospel of John it becomes clear as the trial goes on that it's not Jesus who's the one being tried, but it, the tables have been turned and the Jews are now themselves on trial. Uh, Jesus is their judge, uh, and he's uh, their reaction to Jesus is uh, condemning them. And we have something of the same phenomenon here in uh, Acts in these uh, several chapters. And chapter 22, we looked at in the last episode, Paul goes into the temple uh, chapters 21 and 22, Paul goes into the temple and he's uh, carrying out normal temple rituals. He's observing temple rites. He's not violating anything. He doesn't defile the temple as he's accused of doing. Uh, and yet the Jews accuse him and they arrest him and there's a riot. They, they uh, want to tear him to pieces until the Romans intervene and protect him. That's the last scene that we have in the temple in the book of Acts. In a sense, you could say it's the last scene we have in the temple in the New Testament. Uh, and that's particularly striking in Luke because the Luke acts because Luke ends with the disciples of Jesus in the temple worshiping and praising God. It begins uh, in Jerusalem with the apostles still visiting the temple and worshiping God in the temple. But now the temple has become hostile to the Christians, but also a place of disorder and dissension. Uh, and we'll see the same thing happen here in chapter twenty-three, uh, not in the temple, but with the with the uh, Jewish council, the Sanhedrin where Paul is making an appearance and defending himself. And there's, uh, again, a contention, almost a riot within the Sanhedrin. So uh, when Paul appears before these Jew- in these Jewish settings, uh, he arouses such hostility and hatred that they, they actually fall into the same kinds of dissensions and chaos that they're accusing Paul of causing. And uh, there's a, an implied judgment on the state of Israel 
going on. Jeff has mentioned this a number of times through the course of our studies, that uh, we should pay attention to how the Jews are behaving and how the Jews are, are failing to carry out their mission in the Roman Empire. And that becomes even more obviously true in these couple of chapters. Chapter 23 begins with Paul beginning to present a defense before the Sanhedrin. I live with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. He calls them brothers as he did before. Uh, but then we have this little scene where Ananias, the high priest, commands him to be st- struck on the mouth. And we have this exchange between Paul and the high priest. Any thoughts on how that fits into the overall flow of the story? Why is that there? How does it clarify who Paul is and, and what's going on between him and the Jews? Ananias, the high priest, is known to us from other sources. He's um, described as a fairly corrupt figure by Josephus and others. He seems to have used his money and his influence to gain power with the Romans and was not much loved um, by the people as a result. He, This particular episode is, there's a certain degree of irony here that Paul raises a point of order, um, the way that the court is prejudiced against him. It's um, condemning him without properly having heard him. And he responds to Ananias's action, um, attempting to get those standing by to strike him with a response calling for God to give a punishment that fits that crime, as it were. The Lord will strike Ananias. Seems to be also reminiscent of Jesus and his uh, condemnation of the uh, Pharisees in and the rulers of the Jews in Matthew 23 uh, calls them whitewashed tombs. Here, Paul is calling them whitewashed walls. And the um, th- then those who stood by, uh, you know, accused him of breaking basically part of the book of the covenant, Exodus 22. Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul's answer is it can be taken two ways. I didn't know, brothers, that he was a high priest, which is highly unlikely (laughs) that he actually didn't know that Ananias was the high priest. That seems really crazy. So maybe this is also ironic. I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest. Um, So, um, you know, I I don't count him as a high priest or maybe even a subtle reference to Jesus being a high priest, although that maybe is a little far-fetched. But uh, apparently it's the character of Ananias who's being, it's being revealed here as being corrupt as, um, as Alistair just said. So I I don't know what to think about this whole little um, confession here on the part of Paul. I think it's rather clever, like a lot of what Paul is doing here in this, in these chapters. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the questions with that response, I wasn't aware that he was a high priest. The passage from Exodus that he quotes is not specifically about the high priest, so it's about any ruler of the people. So even if, even if Ananias isn't the high priest, you know the 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 top of the hierarchy, it would seem that that passage would apply. So Paul Paul uh, insulting, reviling anyone in the Sanhedrin would seem to violate that. So it, that that just uh, um, I'm just I'm just adding to the puzzlement over Paul's Paul's response. It, it, it does seem it does as Paul says. There's an irony here, and that they're trying they're trying him, and uh, they're claiming that he's violated the law. Uh, that's that's part of the basis of the trial that he's speaking against Moses and against circumcision. 
but then he points out that they are in fact not observing uh, Torah's own rules for they're supposed to they're supposed to hear testimony <laughs> that's what Torah requires so listen to the testimony and they're trying to shut down the testimony so Paul says you know Paul is the lawkeeper you know uh, he's uh, he's saying yes the same kind of argument that that guy who wrote Romans makes isn't it <laughs> uh, how so <laughs> um i guess those those who um uh do contrary to the law uh, but hold others accountable to the law oh yes early in romans right yes yeah that guy yeah they must have known each other the author roman and <laughs> and the the character paul in acts uh, they must have known each other i was in, i was interested by jeff's comment about this um whitewashed uh there were description of them as as whitewashed that obviously covers the idea of hypocrisy um outwardly very attractive but not within but uh, layered into that there's obviously the contrast between how jesus refers to a whitewashed tomb and, and here it's a whitewashed wall which um may be significant um there in matthew 23 jesus is um talking about how his enemies are sort of preserving this tradition of death really um that which has killed the prophets and slain innocent blood and and so forth um and so a tomb is appropriate here here it's a, a wall because i guess the priests are setting up this um barrier they they are preventing people from entering the kingdom of god and it it reminds me very much of the text of ezekiel 13 where it talks about the um uh, false prophets who who whitewash a wall which is very interesting it, it says that the people are uh, building a wall in those days because they realize there is trouble um without there, there is um wrath to come and, and and the false prophets then proclaim peace um when there is no peace they have this superficial um solution and, and they say jerusalem won't come to uh to disaster and it seems like a lot of that is is very relevant here the people can tell that there is something um going on and and yet the leaders have this very superficial um treatment of it and it brings to mind jesus's words you know would that you had known the things that make for peace um but they are they are hidden from your eyes mm. what are we to make of the fact that paul, paul seems to retract his his words concerning the high priest at least on the surface of it should we take this just as ironic or is um it just a matter of Paul reacting to the situation and not realizing who it was that gave the instruction. And then the irony is that it was the high priest himself who gave the instruction mm. or is some other thing going on. Yeah. It, it, it seems like it, it would be a, I don't think I, just an ironic response uh, fits. It would seem odd for him to quote from Exodus if he were just, if it were just a rhetorical play. But I, I like the suggestion, Alistair, that uh, there's a command given. Paul doesn't know where it's coming from, perhaps. And uh, once he learns that it's a, uh, a statement from the high priest, the high, high priest is still a lawbreaker because he's, he's still uh, conducting the court in a way that violates Torah. But Paul retracts it because uh, he realizes that uh, even though, it's, it, again, we compared to many things Jesus says, but one of the things Jesus says in Matthew 23 is the the rulers, the, the teachers of uh, Israel sit in Moses' seat, and so whatever they teach you, do. 
and you respect the leaders, even if they're, uh, you know, these these are the leaders that are trying to arrest and kill Jesus. So there's a, a respect for the authority, uh, even though uh, Paul recognizes, Paul does, I don't think Paul retracts his claim that uh, Ananias is violating the law. He retracts the reviling statement about the whitewashed tomb. So I, I like the idea that it's, um, he may not actually know who said it, and when he learns that it's the high priest, then, then he retracts it. Yeah, I have in my notes here, uh, and I don't have uh, Witherington with me, but Witherington's uh, commentary um, said it's, it's also very possible that Paul's words are a fine example of irony. I did not realize, brothers, that he was the high priest, the point being that Ananias' action made him unrecognizable as a high priest. Oh. Um, that's po- I mean, okay. that's certainly a yeah, possibility. They, yeah, yeah, that's what you were saying um, earlier, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what I was trying to say earlier. And and it, it fits also, uh, and now I'm not reading Witherington, but just fitting with the context here, Paul recognizes that he's not, after this, he's not going to get a fair trial. These are not impartial, uh, you know, rulers here. Yeah. And so then he, 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 he lands on this, uh, uh, the scheme of dividing them, um, and which which is what happens immediately afterwards. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, there does seem to be a parting of a parting of ways, doesn't there? It's obviously they don't recognize Paul, and they don't recognize his call or his apostleship, and he, he doesn't recognize them. Yeah, that's that's a great point. That makes sense of the sequence of events where you go from this exchange with the high priest to Paul uh, making this declaration about his hope for the resurrection. It's obvious that he's not going to get a fair trial. Uh, the high priest is not acting like a high priest, and so he's not recognizable as a high priest because he doesn't conform to Torah. And uh, Jeff, would you go so far as to say he makes this declaration about the resurrection in order to create a dissension that will lead to him being removed from the Sanhedrin as the court and uh, that he'll be put into a different jurisdiction, maybe. Is that is that too subtle? Yeah. It, you know, no, I think we need to remember, too, that the uh, uh, the Tribune here, Lysias, I think, as he's identified later, yes. uh, is, is watching all this. He's here. And what's going to happen now is that Lysias, the Tribune, is going to get the idea that this, from Paul's actions here, that this is all a squabble about Jewish law and custom. Um, so, uh, not only does Paul divide the Sanhedrin so that they don't know what to do with him, but he gives Lysias this notion that this is basically all just Jewish uh, inter-Nicene, inter-Nicene squabbles. That's also going on here. I think that's the, kind of a tactical move. Uh, that that does seem to be what's happening here. Uh, but that's that tactic is part of a, a larger... I guess, a substantive move that Paul's making, and he'll continue to make through the rest of his trials, which is to shift the, uh, I think we mentioned this in the last episode, to shift the focus of the discussion, the, the subject of the of the trial, he shifts from his own conduct uh, to the question of the resurrection of the dead. And, his, uh, and he puts the resurrection, and specifically the resurrection of Jesus, ultimately, uh, that becomes the the question of the trial. So there's a tactic going on, but the tactic also serves his larger evangelistic aim. 
And Paul seems to be playing off the audience very intentionally here. He begins with looking intently at the council in verse one, and then he perceives that one part is Sadducees and the other's Pharisees. So he's reading the audience and saying things that are designed not just to be truthful in themselves, but designed to provoke certain strategic reactions. Um, and so his words are, his words also play off the disorder that is there. He cries these things out. It's not something that he's just speaking in the course of proceedings. It's almost like he's having this great interjection into a clamor that's already around him. Um, he wants to be sure that every single person in the room hears this particular statement in order that there will be a fitting reaction in response. Mm-hmm. Alistair, what do you think about Paul's statement, brothers, I am a Pharisee? He uses that identification else, elsewhere, um, but it's very much associated with his past. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that he's able to use strategically, though, at this point, because, I mean, on this particular point, he is clearly a Pharisee. There were Pharisees among the Christians as well within Jerusalem. Um, so the Christian sect, as it were, and the sect of the Pharisees were not entirely mutually exclusive. There were many ways in which there could be overlaps. And in his statement, he's shifting the grounds of discussion from his particular situation and the questions around his actions in the temple um, to the question of the resurrection, which would be a very key dividing point for people within the council. And it would be most calculated to get him th- the whole thing thrown out of that court. Mm-hmm. And it's a, in a sense, what's happening in the Sanhedrin is what's ha- been happening in every synagogue that Paul goes to. He goes and begins preaching the resurrection and more specifically the resurrection of Jesus. Some believe, some don't, and then so there's a, a split in the synagogue, and now that that same that same split is occurring at the center of Judaism in the in the high court, the Sanhedrin. And the riots that we've seen following Paul in place city after city, I mean, it's happening at the highest court yes. of the Jews here. Um, it's the effect of the gospel is to reveal just how unstable and volatile society is to its very ruling institutions. Yeah, and the, the specific uh, parallel you're, you're uh, referring to, I think, is uh, here in the Sanhedrin and then a, su- a few chapters later in chapter 19, when Paul's in Ephesus, it's, it's the assembly that uh, is thrown into an uproar. Uh, the same word is used. So there's a dissension or uproar, riot, in uh, the Ephesian assembly, and it's the same thing is happening here in in the Sanhedrin. So you have not just a, you had a riot in the temple, but now you have a riot in uh, in the Sanhedrin too. That's that's just as violent as the one in the in the Gentile city. Uh, what do you make of the claim uh, about the, the Sadducees that they they know no resurrection nor angel nor spirit? What the the, the last two in that list? Does it imply that they have no belief in the afterlife. Um, it's, I think it's, I think, I don't know, I have this in my notes, but I think I remember reading in N.T. Wright that the Sadducees did have a um, belief in the afterlife uh, for 
souls of those who died that would be reunited at the resurrection. Um, but the Sadducees did not. So mm-hmm. there was no interim period before the resurrection for them. Um, so the angel would be and, we're talking about the soul, maybe. Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but then also notice immediately after they say that, on in verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. So uh, the Pharisees say, well, maybe he's had a vision. And then the following night, he does have a vision. Yeah. And the Lord speaks. Of course, it's not a spirit or an angel, but it is the messenger of the Lord who speaks to him. I mean, one possibility would be that it's a reference to different resurrection doctrines um, or doctrines of um, post-mortal life. Um, And the other possibility beyond that would be that one refers to a sort of intermediate state um, prior to the resurrection. Yeah, I I think that sounds right to me, the idea that it's um, different um, post-mortem existences. So... Um, when Peter appears, for instance, the uh, lady Rhoda says, you know, maybe it's his angel. And so angels, spirits, resurrections could be, I guess, different ways of continuing the existence of an individual after death. And back in Luke 24, Jesus is mistaken for a spirit when he appears to his disciples. So it may just be that these terms spirit and angel are interchangeable with reference to the departed dead. Yeah. And it is interesting, Jeff, you, you moved ahead to verse 11, uh, Paul having a vision. But if you look at just at verses 8 and 9, uh, Luke tells us the Sadducees don't believe in angels or spirits. The following verse, the Pharisaical party saying, maybe uh, maybe Paul did see a vision with a spirit or angel, mm-hmm. repeating the very same words. So um, it's the, the dispute is not just about... The, the dispute becomes not just about resurrection and even even afterlife, but it becomes a dispute about whether it's possible that uh, Paul has received some kind of direction, as he claims to have done. And the Pharisees seem inclined to entertain that possibility, uh, where the Sadducees don't. Once again, we have a a nighttime vision. Paul has received visions before Uh, in Corinth. He received a vision encouraging him about uh, the multitude, that uh, the great people that was going to be uh, come into the church in that city. Here he received his encouragement that uh, he is still going to go to Rome in spite of all the turmoil that's going on, the Lord's intention. Uh, There's this, uh, as Jesus must go to Jerusalem and the Christ must die and enter into his glory, so Paul must fulfill certain purposes in a certain uh, a certain itinerary um so that that's and that's a nighttime uh vision and we have another uh, night episode uh it starts uh, the whole thing starts in verse 12 with the unveiling of this conspiracy then paul but then paul is shuttled away by night another pauline exodus uh pauline passover where he's uh, escapes at night from some some threat uh, but this threat in particular is a threat of conspiracy, uh, of the conspiracy that the Jews form uh, at, in the aftermath of this trial. The reference to the um, the vision at this point also helps us maybe to think about some of the things that we've read in the chapters running up to this, where there are a number of predictions of what will happen to Paul in Jerusalem. And 
on the surface of it, a number of the disciples think that that's evidence that Paul should not, in fact, go to Jerusalem. But here we see that it is, in fact, the Lord's purpose that he goes to Jerusalem. We had some indications of that previously, but now it's far more clear that this is part of a a, a clear divine design mm-hmm. that um, Paul would go from Jerusalem and then go on to Rome, and that this was the course that he was supposed to take. Right, and that and that his arrest will ironically be the the means of him getting to Rome. Right. The implication here being also that there's really not going to be any more miraculous escapes mm-hmm. um, that cause to take courage because um, he's going to have to testify in all these uh, various pretrial hearings, basically, until he gets to Rome. In fact, it's going to be a couple of years before he gets to Rome. Uh, but in all of this, um, it's, it, it, it's this reassurance for him. Uh, the Lord is not going to uh, miraculously uh, provide him with a way of escape. He's just going to have to power through it all uh, and and be faithful and testify. Yeah, it's it's uh, going back to James' comment. It's quite uh, remarkable how the Roman the Roman Empire un, un, uh, unwittingly is assisting in the mission of the church uh, here with uh, uh, protecting Paul and making sure he gets to Rome which is the destiny that he has uh, in a few chapters from now in chapter 26, when Paul is testifying before Agrippa, the whole point of that is to gather information so that Festus has something to send along to the, to the emperor. And what he sends along is basically Paul's uh, testimony. <laughs> uh, he's uh, uh, Paul tells about the vision of Jesus. He tells about his encounter with Jesus he tells about talks about the resurrection of the dead, and Agrippa's secretary, I imagine, is taking all these notes so that, uh, or Festus' secretary, so that Festus can send a letter to Caesar. And what Caesar is going to get is basically a, an epistle from Paul. So the Roman Empire is being managed for uh, Jesus is managing the Roman Empire for the sake of the gospel. And just uh, uh, and this announcement also, it's go ahead. This announcement is also something that gives a sense almost Paul is immortal until his mission is completed, if he's following in the course that's been set for him. Um, in a few chapters' time, when he's facing the threat of shipwreck, this is reiterated that he must stand before Caesar. And until that has happened, um, his life cannot be taken if he's continuing in that course. And not just his life, but the life the lives of those who are with him will be saved too on that occasion. But the confidence that that gives, mm-hmm. I think, is a confidence that we can take that if we are walking in the path that God has set for us, we are practically immortal until that path as God has set it has been completed. Yeah. Not, not even snake bites. Yeah, that's a great. Not even snake bites stop us. Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah. That's a, that, that's a great point, Alistair. And yet, um, it also means that Paul is not just going to be passive or quiescent here. Uh, he's got he's got to use his wit even in the shipwreck. Um, he has to figure out a way to get everybody uh, on shore without them or him dying. Mm-hmm. So it gives him it gives him some courage. It gives him some uh, uh, motivation for thinking through the various situations that he's in. And surely that's the case for Christians reading this. Ah, um, 
The Lord was with Paul. The Lord's with me. I can testify. I can figure out how to do things wisely in order to be faithful to the witness for Jesus Christ. Jeff, I want to go back to your comment about uh, not a miraculous escape, which is the case. But he does escape here. There's a conspiracy formed. But uh, as you said, mm-hmm. it's it's different from the previous escapes we've seen. You know, uh, prison doors swing open. Uh, people escape uh, without. Uh, uh, there's an earthquake, that kind of thing. But in this case, it's it's a very it's a very human kind of escape involving all all kinds of secondary characters. Uh, we we learned something about Paul's family, which we we didn't know he had until this moment. Uh, and then we have this series the series of messages being passed that lead to the commander making arrangements for Paul to get from Jerusalem to Caesarea where he can be better protected. Uh, but it's, it's not, it's not the stunningly miraculous escapes that we've seen before, but it's still Jesus taking care of and protecting and, and uh, providing escape for his apostle so that he can carry out his mission. There seems something very wrong about this oath, doesn't there? Well, I mean, that's, that's obvious that there's something wrong about it, but it, um, it, it reminds me very much of the events of, uh, I think it's 1 Samuel 14, where Jonathan has gone up and slain the Philistines and Saul just needs to go and finish the job. But rather than that, he starts um, messing around with a deposed priesthood, that's Eli's line, and making vows that he's not going to eat until he's avenged himself on the Philistines. It, it feels like the same thing is going on here when the Jews should be doing justice and seeking truth and and upholding what's what's right they bind themselves with this um oath to kill paul and it obviously turns out in a very ironic fashion it, it reminds me of how paul can say you know i am uh bound but the word of god is is not bound and and here again the word is not bound because paul goes but they are bound they're banned by this oath and um i don't know what they end up doing because i mean what, what do they do once paul um <laughs> is taken away i mean do they carry on not not eating it's a, it's... yeah should yeah. also note that they're trying to subvert the authority of the roman um the romans that have taken paul's case into their hands at this point um there's a nationalistic flavor to this and the fact that the um council and the Jewish authorities are conspiring with them is a strike against them. It reveals that, again, there's a hypocrisy at the heart of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's that's an excellent point, Alistair, is that these uh, 40 Jews are conspiring with the council so that all of them are have these seditious purposes. They're all revolutionaries. And this taking of an oath, I looked at this, um, when I was dealing with uh, James, especially where James in chapter four talks about nobody taking any oaths and taking these kinds of oaths, uh, this, uh, the, pl- the plotters against Rome would take these kinds of oaths, these zealots, um, in order to accomplish something, some, you know, whatever they were doing, you know, throwing monkey wrenches into the machinery of the Roman Empire um, as an attempt to, you know, to uh, to bring it down. So this is not unusual. Maybe what we have here is a window into this whole oath-taking thing that James uh, warns Christians about. They're mimicking this, okay? So they're being persecuted 
And so they're going to mimic this uh, Jewish zealotry, taking oaths against their persecutors in order to do them harm. Well, this apparently is a pretty common thing at this time, especially with respect, as Alistair said, um, for revolutionary purposes against their Roman overlords. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm, I'm still musing on Jeff's comment about the non-miraculous escape. It's true, but verse 16 uh, you have this conspiracy going on, and you'd think that the council and these 40 assassins would keep it kind of under wraps. <laughs> but the son of Paul's sister hears of the ambush. So how does how does that come about that uh, this thing that's surely whispered in secret is uh, made known to somebody who's close to Paul and can warn him? So again, uh, not the same spectacular miracles that we've seen before, but uh, still the Lord is uh, disclosing information to the right people at the right time so that uh, he can uh, continue to direct the mission, uh, uh, Paul's mission. If Paul moved to Jerusalem during his youth from Tarsus and studied under Gamaliel, it's likely that um, a number of other members of his family would have moved with him, perhaps his sister married in the city. And given Paul's strong associations with leaders within the council, it would seem natural that his family would have um, some of those sorts of connections yeah, too. Yeah. Yeah, right. That's a good point. But you'd, you'd think that uh, they would make sure that they keep the information away from people that close to Paul. Um, the commander gets this message. It's relayed several uh, through several stages. The commander gets the message. And then verse 23 says, he called uh, two of his centurions and said, get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. So this is a major response to this threat to Paul. And it means you have the deployment of a significant number of Roman soldiers to get to Paul. The the scene, I think of scenes from the Old Testament, like the, the guardians that are around Joash in the temple when Joash is placed on the throne. You have these temple guards who surround him so that Athaliah can't call on her troops to kill him. Or the Solomon's coronation where he, that you have to have these, uh, uh, these troops that protect the king until he can be crowned, which I think are in some ways are all human replications of the glory. You know, the, Lord, the Lord travels within a glory assembly of his, of his host, of his warriors. Uh, he's at the center of that. And that's the picture. I think that we have some kind of uh, similar uh, analogical picture with Paul in the center of this, uh, this uh, hive of Roman soldiers that's going to lead him to Caesarea. I mean, I know there's lots of people think this is like rhetorical uh, hyperbole uh, from Luke, but if we just think about the whole Jewish council being involved in mm-hmm. this and the, the, the ruckus that was caused by the crowds in the temple, and now the fact that Lysias knows that Paul is a Roman citizen, and what might happen if a Roman citizen, what might happen to Lysias if a Roman yeah. citizen was, uh, was stoned or to death under his leadership? Uh, and also just the powder keg, which is, which is Jerusalem and mm-hmm. Judea at this time in relationship to Rome. It, it, it's not entirely unbelievable that he would want to be very careful here right. uh, in the way he uh, transports Paul. To Caesarea, right, and this verse thirteen says that forty have taken the oath, but you don't know how many might be associated with them. 
uh, if they were making a making an attack. If Paul's being transported to the council, then uh, they might have uh, have a, a larger group that's going to that's going to attack. And so the yeah the uh, the the numbers of the soldiers seems does seem plausible to me. And as you say, especially given the situation, what do you think of uh, Claudius's Claudius Lysias's letter to Felix that accompanies uh, this entourage? What do you want us to think of it? <laughs> I want you to tell me what you think. I mean, his um, declaration about Paul, I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment, um, has a very pilot-like um, <laughs> ring to it. He, he sees it as something for the Jews to deal with themselves, but and, and sees Paul as innocent but it also when it says you know he he did nothing deserving death it makes it very clear that that was what the jews were pushing for um they didn't just want paul to be punished or publicly flogged or or, or something like that they wanted the the death sentence passed upon him that um confirms just comment earlier about uh, paul not just uh, trying to address the jewish accusations but also trying to persuade romans that uh, he's uh, that he's persuade Romans that the the issues between the Sanhedrin and Paul are are Jewish debates, uh, and that's worked that that uh, that ploy because uh, uh, Lysias is convinced of that. The thing I w- one of the things I was thinking is the the description of Lysias's uh, rescue of Paul. Uh, this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them. I came upon him with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman, as if he knew he was a Roman before he rescued him, which is not what Luke told us. Luke said that he discovered he was a Roman uh, when he was about to about to uh, interrogate him with uh, whips, which um, he glosses over that part of the story. <laughs> You can imagine that that would be a natural thing to gloss over if you're in um, his position. Um, (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) We think the Roman Tribune here is actually writing a self-serving document. (laughs) One interesting question is Luke's source. Um, Presumably, he must have had access to someone who had been part of all of these affairs, um, maybe that's where he got the numbers of the troops involved as well, which is an extremely large number and suggests something about just the level of a threat to public order that the authorities thought that this represented. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he, he quotes, seems to be, he claims to be quoting from a letter. Uh, there's a discussion in the, in the following chapter about in 24 about whether Luke has access to court records and is able to, is using those to reconstruct Tertullus's speech and Paul's response. So that seems to me a plausible uh, idea, given given the way Luke uh, goes about his uh, his gospel account and also the other things that ha- are happening in Acts. It does seem like he has some uh, some documentary evidence that he's able to consult. Well, one thing that we could um, say here at the conclusion of twenty three was is that the the, when Paul was before the, the council in Jerusalem, uh, the Pharisees at least made a statement, we find nothing wrong in this man. That is the first of, I think, six times now after this, when these all these 
pretrial hearings come to this conclusion. So you had the, the Pharisees concluding this. And then you also had um, the Tribune in his letter um, to Felix concluding this also. I found nothing wrong with the man, nothing deserving death or imprisonment. Um, this is going to build up as as the narrative goes along. Um, and we're going to find that as, as God weaves together this story in terms of his providence uh, with all the things that go on behind the scenes, but as Paul also uses his wits, um, there's this there's this wonderful collaboration of God's providence and Paul's cleverness and his faithfulness, his doing everything according to his conscience. We're going to see that as well uh, to bring about this this great proclamation, this great and very public. Uh, proclamation of the gospel through his life story. And although this is just on the surface of it, the trial of one man, as we see in the case of Christ, his trials and his crucifixion reveal all these fault lines within the society more generally. It begins with a fault line between the Pharisees and the Sadducees within the council. Then it's the fault line between the Jews and the Romans. And what we're seeing is the ramifications of a message that on the surface of it is about one man, Jesus of Nazareth. And yet that message has the potential to explode the society more generally, the relationship between the authorities and the crowd, the different factions within the society. And this is a revelation of the character of the message more generally, that this is a message with political force and impact and you cannot just contain this. Hmm. And yet while the Jews and Romans seem to share the guilt in terms of Jesus' crucifixion, you know, there is Pilate's weakness uh, combined with all sorts of other things and sending Paul to Herod to sort of toy with him, uh, sending Jesus to Herod. Um, here, the Roman justice comes across as a, a lot better. They spare um, Paul from the Jews and then they send him um, away, not not sort of toying with him, but to get him a, a fair trial. And it really underscores um, the Jews as, as particularly guilty in, in this instance, I, I would think. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.